I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. Mm -hmm. The third day he rose again from the dead. Yeah, and so there's this this breaking of those chains. You know, you think about Samson as he's uh, incarcerated in this city um, in, I think it's actually Gaza or something, but, uh, you know, and he, uh, he, not only does he leave the city, (laughs) but he picks the gates up, right? So he Mm -hmm. breaks out of the city, but he doesn't just break out. He throws those gates on his shoulder. He carries it to the top of the hill and, and, and installs them there. Mm. And I think, man, that is a picture of Jesus' mm. resurrection. That's his conquest of the grave, mm. that he didn't just, you know, sneak out between the bars, but that he ripped those things off their hinges and stuck mm-hmm. them up on a, on a hill somewhere um, so that those who are who have died in Christ, who, who died in faith, uh, are receiving their reward. And so Revelation depicts the righteous dead, at the throne of God. Hey, welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast. We are seeking to recover faith. Yes, we by are. By recovering the faith. I'm Kent. And I'm Nathan. All right. And this is episode 20 of the According to Scripture series. Mm-hmm. Today's title is Eternity Now. Eternity Now. Eternity Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan has this interesting thing uh, to say to us today. Before Jesus, nobody expected to go to heaven when they die. (laughs) Say what? Right. (laughs) Yeah. So this all came out of a conversation I had a while back with Jaden, and then he's, that's my son, who's at college, and he's talking to a friend, and the friend was like, what? You know, and so he asked me to put something together. I don't know if he's read it or using it, but uh, you guys get it, so... There you go. Um, I just want everybody, if you're a Seinfeld fan, uh, shout out to you, Eternity Now. I don't know if you... <laughs> it's not, not it's lost on me. Seinfeld, yeah, they yeah. had this whole thing. It was Serenity Now. Serenity Now, yeah, okay. Yeah, but what they didn't tell you was it's Serenity Now, Insanity Later. Insanity. Yeah, you just try to, try to stuff everything is what this uh, self-help thing, Serenity Now. <laughs> so, Nathan, what does happen after we die? Most Christians would say that believers go to heaven right, and lost people go to hell. Yeah. And you say that's a simplistic vision not presented in the Bible. Yeah, it's complicated, man. It's not complicated. It's just, I guess it's different. Um, so what I, I think what, what a lot of us miss is that the, the concepts of heaven and hell are largely um, related to the final state after judgment. That heaven, um, the word of heaven can mean a lot of things. And there are a lot of words that are translated hell in the older translations, especially. And so, you know, especially if you read an older Bible, you would see the word heaven and you would see the word hell. And you would think these are two places. Oftentimes, heaven refers to a multi-layered place. As we've mentioned, I think, previous on the podcast, that it's really the heavens oftentimes. And there's the concept that heaven is pretty much anything above the biosphere. So it could be the sky, you know, above us. Um, there's an idea, I guess, in Scripture, and I think what's assumed is that there, that the uh, the heavens are a place of other beings besides us. I don't. We might call them aliens. <laughs> I don't know what they are. I mean, recent UFO phenomena seem to suggest there's something out there, 
at the same time, we can't detect any energy signals or radio waves. And so whatever's out there appears to be not of this creation, or at least doesn't follow natural law as we understand it. So there you go. There seems to be a layer of existence, something higher, more powerful, that's directly above our lived experience here on this planet. Hmm. The, the skies above, the heavens declare his handiwork, the skies above. There's a psalm right. where it's the heavens and the skies above are sort of in mm-hmm. parallelism. Right. So it's just like everything that's up there. Right, yeah. And then, you know, God is, as we've mentioned, uh, I think on a few podcasts ago, that God is depicted especially as the Israelite people begin to interact with pagan nations and uh, God becomes, he's called the God of heaven. Um, and so he seems to be ruling over these beings. So, you know, there's there's a lot when we talk about heaven and the heavens, then it's it's complicated reality. At the same time, you know, when we talk about hell, there are several words in the New Testament. There's, there's the word for Hades. Uh, there's the word for a valley outside of Jerusalem, the, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. Um, there's uh, the word that's, I, I think, analogous to like Tartarus. Um, so it's a place of a punishment, uh, disembodied, but it's not exactly the final state. So it seems to me that uh, that hell, as we understand it, isn't um, even populated right now. It's something that the uh, demonic powers dread after Judgment Day. Whereas there's a maybe a place called Hades that is populated. Right, yeah. Sheol, same thing? Sheol, yeah, the grave. And so that's... When uh, when the ancients, especially you know, in the in the Hebrew scriptures, when they talked about the afterlife, there wasn't some sort of a he's in a better place now or anything. It was um, it was kind of an an, an unpleasant place uh, or concept, something that you wanted to avoid if you could, and and, and certainly you don't have to teach people to want to avoid death. Um, but uh, the New Testament, the you know the the vibe changes. Okay. As, and there's a reason for that. So, so we're going to get there, but we're going to start in the Old Testament, right? Right. Because yeah. this is our series called According to Scripture. Yeah. Where we're going back to the Old Testament. We are. We're trying to yeah. pick up on themes there that that allude to or point toward the gospel. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So where are we beginning today? Genesis chapter 37? Yeah, let's Jacob. do it. Yeah, I remember him. Jacob yeah. expected to join Joseph there. Yeah, in the grave or in this 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 unpleasant place, right? Right, right. In the Old Testament, people saw the grave, Sheol, as their destination at the end of life. Then here's how Jacob reacted to evidence that Joseph had died. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to, com- to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. Okay. So his father wept for him. All right, so he's, he's, he's picturing uh, that his destination is the grave. Yeah. Not heaven with God. Right, yeah. And um, he, he has this, this depiction of some sort of a, of a reunion, I guess, that... Uh, so that would suggest that it could be figurative, but it, it kind of suggests a conscious state, um, but also one that is maybe not ideal uh, or where you would want to end up. Okay, so possibly a place where disembodied spirits can reunite, yes. and that, that correlates with ideas we have today about heaven, right. mm-hmm. uh, but not really a desirable place to be. Yeah, not the ideal place anyway. Right. Yeah. So it, uh, in Genesis 47, he continues, when the time... 
drew near for Israel, that's Jacob, to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand, on, hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, Joseph said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, why did you have me read that section? Okay, well, we talked about this previously, that uh, Jacob had had this really bleak idea of his ultimate uh, state, his destiny, and that was to join Joseph in the grave. And then he had this uh, realization that Joseph was still alive, and so he had experienced the faith of the resurrection, I think, in that moment, and that was... um, in that moment, he himself was revived, I think, spiritually in the way he saw things, um, his kind of faith, his expectation. At the same time, he didn't expect that after he died, he would be um, in God's immediate presence. It seems that he expected to join his fathers, just as he said he would join Joseph in the grave. Um, and at the, But then he also, uh, as we made the deal, and I think the author of Hebrews points out that he had this expectation of a resurrection because he wants to wake up in the promised land um, and he's worshiping as he leans on the top of his staff and the author of Hebrews and Hebrews 11 makes a deal that this was an affirmation of an expectation of promises yet to be fulfilled. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there is this, the grave, the afterlife from uh, the patriarch's perspective is, is, is you're dead, (laughs) right? You're dead and gone. Um, you are in a place with uh, those who have also died, uh, and you are awaiting a greater hope that this isn't where you're going to land ultimately, but that there's something better. But in the short term, you are somewhere with your relatives, but you are officially classified as dead. Mm-hmm. And so, so this isn't this isn't a materialistic view of the person. Uh, it there is an understanding of the soul mm-hmm. that goes on after the body decomposes in the yes. ground, mm-hmm. um, but this isn't. But is but it is different right. also than uh, popular American notions yeah. of going to heaven when you die. Yeah, and I, I think it's similar uh, to the Greek notion that you know if you read antiquity, ancients, classics, um, there's an idea that you know you're. If you die, you're going to end up in a disembodied state. It's not a nice place. Um, it's not a place where you see the sun or um, you have exploits or anything. You're really just kind of in holding. Um, do you think? So. Do you think in this view that you're conscious? Yeah. As a soul, in, yeah. In uh, in Hades, in Sheol. Right. Yeah. But the the state of your existence is is somewhat suppressed. I would say, or something that there's not a um, uh, what is it that makes us alive, right? <laughs> what, what is it to be truly alive? And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with your, your purpose, your exploits, your aspirations. But if, by definition, where you are has none of that, mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess the show The Good Place comes to mind. Okay, so here are people who are the, the, in their concept, I guess, or their parody of the afterlife. You have the good place, the bad place. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you, but a lot of people end up in the bad place and um, but people who end up in the good place ultimately just kind of fade, you know. The good place ends up really not being that good of a place because there's just nothing to do, 
You know, there's no challenges, no exploits, no risk, nothing to be learned, nothing to be conquered. And those people, while they're supposedly uh, living in some sort of bliss, are just slipping away. Um, and ultimately, they're given the opportunity to just be annihilated and they choose it. Um, and it's because they're just idle. They're not living, mm-hmm. you know. There's nothing challenging. There's nothing pulling them or compelling them. And so even though they were greats on Earth, they're just nothing there. They're just hanging around in this eternal cocktail party, this cruise. And, um, you know, ultimately nobody wants to be there like that. So uh, whether you are in a holding place that is blissful or you're in a holding place that is torment, you're still in a holding place. And so for all intents and purposes, you're dead. Okay. All right. So we've covered Jacob. Now we're moving to David. David cried out to be delivered from going there. Yeah. Um, In 2 Samuel 22, verses 5 through 7, David says, The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. So David didn't want to die. He cries out to God to spare him from death. Right. Yeah, he's not a fan. Um, he seems to have conceived of the disembodied state as conscious, but separated from God's presence. Right, yeah. In appealing to God to rescue him from death, he reasoned, Turn, Lord, and deliver me, Psalm 6. Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? All right, so yes. that's very different from yes. the, the, the modern Christian notion of going to heaven when you die, mm-hmm. uh, where you Just are with God and you will praise God. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, he's saying there, there is no praise. I mean, he, you know, <laughs> people try to do this bargaining with God. You know, it's like Moses is like, but what do the Egyptians think? You know, mm-hmm. I wonder, does God really care? You know, he, he obviously clearly doesn't care what these little Egyptians think, except that he has a greater hope of, Winning them, you know, as we get farther on down. Um, but uh, when, you know, David is obviously bargaining with uh, God, and he's saying, oh, man, you know, think about all this worship I'm offering, you know, all this praise. Who's going to do that? You know, how am I going to do that if you send me away, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I should mention David's cry uh, to be delivered is this very similar to Jonah. You know, he talks about... In his prayer, and in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me from the deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, would, I would like to, I guess, suggest that Jonah here, as he's from inside the fish, uh, a lot of times, and I, and I want to say this, this isn't, all of this is in an article that we'll put in the show notes, by the way, uh, except for this stuff on Jonah, which I may or may not add. But I, I want to drop a peg about Jonah here because Jonah is a, uh, a picture of somebody. What we see in Jonah is not just somebody who goes into a fish and is desperate. Um, and I'll have to look at this reference again. But um, in, the, in the ancient world, Babylonian ideas uh, that your body hangs around or your soul hangs around your body for three days after you die that it's just trying to transition and that's Mm -hmm. the idea okay so the significance of three days is important that means you're really really dead you Mm -hmm. know until three days you're mostly dead after three days you're all dead Mm -hmm. right because then your soul moves on then your soul moves on right it can't stick around and so when 
the Bible depicts Jonah in this fish, and you know, skeptics are like, "Do you really believe somebody lived in a fish for three days?" And I say, "No, I don't. I think he died. I think he was he drowned, mm-hmm. uh, and a fish ate him, and he's being digested. I mean, there are fish that are easily capable of swallowing a person whole." Mm-hmm. Um, and there he was. And so when it says that Jonah was in the fish, it's that his soul's still hanging around. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the idea of the abyss at the bottom of the sea and for the ancients was really kind of a way to get to the underworld. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Jonah is really being carried by this fish to the underworld. Mm-hmm. And what he's asking for is to be let out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... Uh, Out of Sheol. Out of Sheol. He says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. So when Mm -hmm. Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, he is referencing a bodily resurrection that took place with Jonah. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's not just saying like, you know, Jonah was in a fish and I'm going to be dead. Those don't have anything to do with each other. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, he's saying Jonah died, hung around for three days, was spit out to be a a testimony for repentance to the Mm -hmm. Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Right. What did Jesus do? Yeah. Three days is, is released, right. Mm -hmm. Goes and and is a testimony now to the nations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so here we are, we listen. Israel sadly did not. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but Jesus uh, loves, uh, whereas Jonah hated <laughs> his audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there's this uh, call, this cry, and notice that where Jonah in Jonah's story, he was fleeing the presence of the Lord, mm-hmm. and so he got what he wanted, right? <laughs> yeah, down in the depths. Yeah, but even from there, God can rescue, and so He will. Um, and so that's what we get. Now, I think, you know, what we just have to understand that there's this concept of this holding place. And that's what makes it a little bit more sophisticated. So grave, Sheol, Hades, roughly the same place. Um, and, and so, and this place seems to be divided into compartments. And I guess that's uh, well, let's talk about the only people who went to heaven in the Old Testament, right? Okay. Uh, there were three. There were three. That Well, and maybe two and a half. We don't know about Moses. I mean, we're still... Maybe the jury's out, but he seems to be present at the um, coming of Christ. Right? Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. In Genesis right. 5, we're told that Enoch was no more because the Lord took him. All right? So Enoch goes to be mm-hmm. with God. Is that what you mean? He goes to be yeah. to heaven. Right, yeah. He doesn't go to. He doesn't die and go to Sheol. He just gets translated to heaven, right? Bodily. Deuteronomy thirty-four says that Moses died and the Lord buried him, but then makes a point to say that no one knew where he was, his body was. This suggests perhaps that God raised Moses subsequ- subsequently, like He did with Jesus, since the same language is used by Jesus of those who would search for Him after His death. Yeah. Finally, Second Kings two tells about how Elijah was taken bodily into heaven. All right, so Elijah goes bodily into heaven to be with God. Skips Sheol. Yeah. The Gospels depict Moses and Elijah alive and talking with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, which seems to support the ideas, this this, this claim that Moses and Elijah were translated to heaven. Right, yeah. So it seems that you have to be alive in some way to get into heaven, that God is just as, you know, uh, and other 
people have made the point that the temple seems to be this representation of heaven on earth, the, the Old Testament temple, tabernacle. And uh, death was, was excluded, right? And, and we'd mentioned this before, that the high priest couldn't even, he couldn't leave to bury even if his parents had passed away, and he couldn't mourn for them in the temple. So there's this preservation of this um, deathless place, <laughs> right? That this representation of heaven that is beyond the reach of, of death and its uh, consequences. So dead people don't belong in heaven. <laughs> that's, the, that's the gist. And in heaven, really, there can be no death. So that's why the only three people that we know of that went into heaven in terms of uh, God's immediate presence, I suppose, is uh, in the Old Testament. They were people who, it seems, were alive. So. Okay. All right. All right. So this leads to our next point. Um, the Old Testament saints looked forward to a time of resurrection from the grave. Yeah. Yeah. They saw death as a temporary banishment from God. And so um, they they use that kind of language that there's this um, this alienation, this estrangement that happens at death. But so that negatively fixed. Right, right. right. So negatively... Uh, death is a time of banishment from God. Positively, mm. they looked forward to a time when they would no longer be banished right. from God's presence, but would be raised and brought into his presence. Exactly. Yeah. And so Job, who, you know, is the picture of, you know, life sucks and then you die. Um, at least that's his view on things. And, and at one point he just, he sees God as... Um, and I think fairly, uh, the cause of his suffering, and um, he is looking for reprieve from God's presence um, himself because he thinks, you know, if if I'm wrong and he's right, then um, obviously I can't possibly know how to be right, and I just need to have a break, right? Um, and so he he looks for this banishment, I think, in a way, he, he wants it. And I, I think there are disembodied spirits right now that prefer banishment from God. Um, and we could talk about that some other day. But at any rate, he, um, he does long, perhaps, for uh, a banishment from God, but he doesn't want that to continue forever. And so in Job 14, we kind of get this, this interplay between death as some sort of a, a distance from God, but also a desire to be back in the land of the living. So you want to read that? Job says, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Job is, uh, is reasoning, right, about life, okay? And, he, and he's saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a created being. Um, I know that God is ultimately good. I know that life uh, contains some suffering. Um, I, need, I would like to rest from it, but at the same time, I just don't want to be banished. I don't want to be gone for good. Um, and so he's saying, if, if God created me in the first place and what I am is unique, um, 
then he, as a creator, and uh, Peter mentions something similar. He says, the one that's suffering, let him trust himself into the hands of a faithful creator. So God created us. Um, then it seems that he will want to retain us. And that is Job's hope in, in a time when there's very little revelation for him, you know. So he is seeking death as, as a reprieve, uh, but he also is looking to God who will ultimately bring him forth. And so, um, and then Job gets very, very explicit about this hope for resurrection on over in Job 19. 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Yeah, so you can't be much clearer than that as to what the ancient hope yeah. was. And um, and so it's just really explicit. You know, after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. So mm -hmm. um, the disembodied state isn't the ideal. It's not like, man, let's shed this, uh, like some sort of platonic dualism that mm -hmm. the material realm is evil, and if we could just escape it, then we could live. Yeah. Um, but if we thought that, then that that would say that God is not a faithful creator. And in fact, those dualistic belief systems uh, have to suppose an evil creator, <laughs> you know, and and some sort of a, a holy and righteous redeemer. Um, and and God is our creator and our redeemer. Mm -hmm. And so the ultimate hope and the ultimate state is what Job articulates here, that there is going to be an ultimate re uh, resurrection at the end of time, right? That in the end, he will stand on the earth. So he himself will have a body uh, or feet and uh, that he will stand on the earth and that we will see him with our own eyes, that our hope isn't in our descendants uh, coming to see him or another iteration of ourselves, but who we are who we essentially are, is going to see God in the flesh. And that's just a very ancient hope that is retained throughout Scripture. Um, and then, you know, when we get over to David, he expresses, or at least those around David, express a similar hope. And I, I think I just threw this one in gratuitously because I really like this story. Um, so let me give you the backstory about David. David had sons, right? And he committed this indiscretion with Bathsheba. God said that this, uh, this is going to have consequences for your life. Um, Absalom uh, ends up killing his half-brother Amnon, who um, had committed some, we won't get real specific about it, I guess, but uh, some indecency, I guess, and, and done some, some evil. And so Absalom is um, avenging his uh, sister, his full sister Tamar, Absalom's, or Amnon's half-sister. Um, and so he... He killed Amnon, his brother. And the law of Moses would say that Absalom would have to die, but David, not being really great at following the law in every case, you know, um, decides, well, instead he'll banish him. And so he does. But even that, even at that, he begins to long for Absalom. He misses him. He's, you know, it's, it's certainly hurting David more than it is Absalom. And so 
Joab sees that David is suffering, and he he tries to find a way to resolve this tension for David. Um, and so he sends like uh, like he does like Nathan. Um, yeah, Nathan the prophet comes in and tells him this parable and says, "Thou art the man, right?" When mm-hmm. he, with his indiscretion with Bathsheba, so uh, this woman, when she's not named, she's just called a woman, wise woman from Tekoa, and she comes in and says, "Oh, you know, will you please judge for me? My, um, I'm a widow, and and I have two sons, and uh, one son killed the other, you know, and and now the the surviving son is facing." Um, execution and I will be completely bereft because I'll have nobody. And David finds a way to, uh, around the law, I guess, a loophole. And he's trying to save uh, this woman from the, from just completely having nobody. Um, and now she turns it on him and, um, you know, take up with what she says. When, then. when the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Sounds familiar. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Yeah. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that one's not familiar to me. Yeah, I, I really like it, man. It just gives me chills as I think about it. You know, as this God who... Not only is he a faithful creator, but he is a father. And just like David is stuck, man. I mean, his his kid is screwed up, you know. I mean, in such a way that if he just accepts him back, what does that say about him as a king? And just like, is David soft on sin? I mean, is this all nepotism? Why should any of us obey the law? Why should any of us respect the king if he forgives his own son, right? There's just this longing, though, that he has for his kid. And, and mm-hmm. what a dilemma. Doesn't that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. You know, that sounds like uh, the dilemma that our sin puts God in, if we can even speak in those terms. And yet God wants us, I think, to see things from his point of view. And so he gives us this story uh, from David's life. And as we know, David already is kind of a type for God um, as king, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does he, God is, as father, longs for his children and he has devised a way, mm-hmm. hasn't he? Right. Yeah. So that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the hope. That's the Old Testament hope. But remember, death is banishment, doesn't it? Doesn't it mm-hmm. seem like for everybody? Mm-hmm. There's not like some dead people are banished and some aren't. From At that moment in the Old Testament, the assumption is death is banishment. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, we're gonna to have to put a pin in my question because I know this is, is gonna take us astray. But I want to, I want to, I would like to come back to the New Testament or the biblical notion of spiritual death in this life mm-hmm. and being banished from God in this life yeah. because we're spiritually dead. Yeah. And how does that relate to this discussion about actual physical death? Yeah. But yes. we continue. Isaiah. Okay. <laughs> Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah. He keeps on going with this idea, and so. Um, just one more, I guess, proof of, of this mentality that um, death is is a, a place where you, you go and you hide in your room, I guess. Isaiah, and, and he's using uh, Exodus mentality, right? So in the Exodus, when the Passover was taking place, what did the people have to do, right? They had to go into their house and, and, and hide, mm-hmm. okay? Because God's wrath is sweeping through the neighborhood. And uh, so Isaiah is saying... 
uh, of God's people that um, in these times of trials and conquest and you know death and all of that and people are wondering you know where is God how is he you know how is he helping us and um, and Isaiah is saying look this this isn't the end right and so Isaiah twenty six nineteen through twenty one but your dead will live Lord their bodies will rise let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Okay, Nathan, are you saying that going into your rooms is dying and going into the yes, grave? Right, yeah. Your room is your tomb. And that's a place where you can hide yes. from the wrath of God that's coming upon the earth. Right, yeah. Okay. So that's how they, you know, that's how Isaiah conceives of, of death in this intermediate state. Notice that the Lord is coming out of his dwelling. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he has a different place where he's staying and he's coming out and you really don't want him to come out of there because, you know, he's, he's going to do some stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so... These rooms, and I and I really bring them up because the book of Enoch gets really explicit and specific about um, this place of the afterlife. So the book of Enoch is not uh, in the Bible, right? It's in the Apocrypha, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, in the Catholic Bible, there's a section called the Apocrypha. I can't remember. I don't if Enoch know is if in it's that. in Enoch. I don't think it is actually okay. because because when the canon was put together. Um, this was in the fourth century, but the book of Enoch was lost. And it's still lost somewhat. We, we're piecing it together, but it uh, it was found actually. I think maybe at Qumran, but Dead Sea um, Scrolls. That's yeah, Qumran. But it actually it was found in Ethiopia. It, originally, we didn't even have any Greek manuscripts for Enoch. It was in a in an ancient lost Ethiopian language. Um, but it obviously we found other scrolls and stuff. I think at Qumran that predate uh, the time of Christ. Um, and so it would seem that this book had traveled with the church and that there were other installments supposedly. I, w- I would say it was in what, what's called the pseudepigrapha, right? The, pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha, yes. <laughs> I never known what that was called until now. This is I why you have the training. Okay. <laughs> no. Why am I doing this? Okay, but pseudepigrapha, thank you. Um, but the people, there's writings, there are writers in the New Testament that allude to the book of Enoch. Only to the, the first, only to first Enoch, and I just want to say that there's first, second, and third Enoch. Second okay. and third Enoch appear to be have been written after Christ. Okay, but it seems that those books traveled um, around with the gospel. Mm-hmm. That they were part of this, this collection of, of writings that went around, among others, the, the New Testament writings we have, along with other things in the pseudepigrapha, and also uh, I, I mean other letters like um, Clement and. Shepherd Vermas stuff like that. Okay, so if if you had to if you if you have to think that the Bible is this unity that God broke with His hand or something, then um, sorry, it's not the case, mm-hmm. right? It's been pieced together. Things have been lost. Things have been picked back up. I will say that the Book of Enoch is weird to my ears. I you know I'm not so sad that it got lost mm-hmm. and isn't a part of our New Testament. At the same time, the uh, authors of the New Testament and Jesus apparently read it and mm-hmm. revered it mm-hmm. they were influenced by it right and so and we will talk about at least some 
ways in which it was. So uh, there's kind of an extended reading in the book of Enoch. Maybe we should, you want to just like, you want me to give people the summary and then sure, they can yeah. read it in the notes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Enoch goes on all these visions and stuff. He sees this, these places uh, and they're obviously whoever wrote this book is, is pinging off of the Enoch tradition that he um, was translated, right? That he didn't see death and that he spent some time in heaven and all that. Um, and as he is in these places and traveling through all these spiritual realms, he sees the afterlife, uh, and it is these caves, as he describes it, these chambers with smooth walls that are dug out, and they contain disembodied spirits. Uh, he mentions four of them. One of them has just got Abel in it by himself, <laughs> you know, and, and we don't know the degree to which this is just like an apocalyptic thing. It doesn't really reflect uh, specifically what's going on in the afterlife, but um, at any rate, it, it seems to be somewhat analogous, at least, to, to the afterlife, okay? So one of these caverns is a place with the springs of water, so um, bright spring of water. It's a, it's a nicer place, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the righteous are, and then you have one that is more that is more unpleasant. It's torment. It's where uh, I guess it's the spiritual death row. People are waiting for the day of judgment. And then you have the fourth one, which is where the people who drown in the days of Noah. Uh, it, Enoch just says that they died in the days of the sinners. Uh, but Enoch really does deal a lot with Noah and the Noahic flood and all of that stuff around there. So it seems likely that these were the spirits of people who really faced judgment for their sins, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but now what they do they died. They right. died. Right. Now do they go sins. to heaven? Do they, you know, do they, are they uh, rewarded for their sins? I mean, they, they face judgment for their sins and they're not annihilated. So where are they? Uh, and so there's this kind of middle ground. It's not a place of suffering, but it's also a place they can't get out of. They are kind of uh, eternity in prison. I do you suppose. mean that these people are different because they didn't just die a natural death? They right. were. They died under the active judgment of God. Right. The flood. Right. So they were judged. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they're not. You know, they're not on death row. They've already been executed, if okay. you will. Okay. Uh, but what do you do with them then? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so in Enoch, they are um, just housed in in a place to forever. Like there's not a, a way out of this. They there's not. They're not awaiting judgment. They've already been through judgment. Mm-hmm. So they're just there. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Maybe that's problematic as you think about God as being merciful, right? And and just having people in this in this hole in the ground for, you know, or whatever it is, however it's experienced, seems like a problem, you know. So when we get to the New Testament, we begin to see that there is um, there's reference to this. You get to the, the story of uh, Luke uh, in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich man, this parable or whatever it is that Jesus tells, right? And that these two, so you have Lazarus, and he's a beggar at the at the rich man's door, and uh, they both die. And the language is very much very similar to Enoch in in terms of the Lazarus is carried by angels to um, Abraham's bosom. Okay, remember now. Notice he's not carried into God's presence, right? Um, and but he's carried to a place where he's being comforted, whereas the rich man. Uh, it dies and is buried, we're told, and um, somehow that's that's how he gets to where he is. 
um, which is an unpleasant place, right? Mm -hmm. In torment. And, mm -hmm. and this seems to suggest that uh, Jesus had read Enoch and these two, this, these compartments um, and these two versions of the afterlife or the disembodied state. And, uh, and so he refers to them, right? Um, and then when you get to Peter and first uh, Peter, 3, 18 through 20, uh, Peter takes up this idea of, um, I think, that that fourth chamber. So remember, okay, the chamber four chambers. one. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you tell me. Chamber one, just Abel crying out chamber for. Chamber one is Abel. <laughs> That's right. Abel's chamber. Right, okay. and he's just in there hollering for um, just for justice. Justice, yeah. Can't kill Abel, and Abel's right. there in chamber right. one. Chamber mm -hmm. two. Chamber two is the righteous dead in the in by the bright springs of water. Um, change, chamber three okay. is the unrighteous dead okay. waiting for judgment. Okay. Chamber four is the people who died in the flood. Okay. The flood. Chamber one is Abel. Chamber two is the righteous dead awaiting to be raised to be with God forever. Mm. Chamber three is the unrighteous dead awaiting judgment. Yeah. Uh, chamber four is uh, those who were already judged. Yes. So they're in a tricky spot because they were already judged under, it, by the flood. They were judged by the right. flood. Right, yeah. Okay. So now Peter takes up their plight in First Peter three eighteen through 20a. Okay. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Okay. How strange. Uh -huh. So Peter, so Peter is, is referring to uh, the book of Enoch. Yes. And the description, depiction there of the chambers. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he's and he's got that in the back of his mind. It's shaped his thinking. And as mm -hmm. he's and as the gospel has come to him, and as he's preaching the gospel, he's thought he's thinking, he's reflecting on what Christ did when yeah. when God made a lot made Christ alive in the Spirit. Yes. Notice. Let's, let's back up. Yeah. Jesus went to the place of the dead. He did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He went to Sheol, mm -hmm. and God made him alive. Yes. After he went to the place of the dead. Alive and disembodied. Uh-huh. <laughs> Notice yeah. that when he's made alive, he goes and proclaims to the spirits in Sheol, right? To, so there's this there's this state that's alive but disembodied, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and I would I would submit that it is having been let out of that grave, okay? Having been let out of that chamber, um, you are now you now have the freedom to act. You can move back. You can come back. You can go into the presence of God, whatever, being let out of that soul prison. Okay. And so Jesus, having been let out of that soul prison, um, is now offering freedom to others. Yeah. On the basis of, of his righteousness. So, you know, he's not just not the worst. He's somebody who has transcended really human existence in, in the grace that he's shown in the faith in God, God who built these prisons is, is able, God the Father is able to open the door, let him out, right? And so Jesus, Jesus throws open the gates of, of this soul prison. Yeah. 
And then he goes over and, like any good prisoner <laughs> who's been given the keys, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. goes over and says, hey, guys, you can, you can get out. Yeah, it um, says he made proclamation right. to the imprisoned spirits. Yes. So he preached the gospel to them, I it would seem. Did. Yeah. Now, if you're one of these imprisoned spirits, you've got no more advantage than someone on earth who hears the gospel. You know, they saw Jesus do signs, right? They, the, so the first ones that Jesus preached the gospel to, they saw that, hey, this guy's not the same as everybody else. They had that choice and that chance. They could also remain where they were, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the case with those spirits in prison, that they're like, he's like, look, I'm here, you know, I'm setting things to right. I'm bringing God's grace, and you can get out if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many of them took him up on it. None, all, some, who knows. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think it resolves something that Enoch left unresolved, that these people were in prison for eternity in some shadow land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're at least given an, the option. And perhaps that chamber's emptied. Some people ended up in the in the waiting to go to judgment, mm-hmm. uh, having rejected the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now um, they are uh, able they're now the, to face judgment. They're the unrighteous dead now. Yeah. Right, right. But I, I want to make a point of this idea that being alive in the spirit is a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that you can be alive and disembodied, mm-hmm. and and that is to be let out and uh, really to be somebody who has agency you know who mm-hmm. who can do a thing yeah um, and so that's that's where Jesus is he's made a lot he was made alive in the spirit you know before after his death and before his resurrection he's let out of that soul prison and i think that that is what it means to be made alive in the spirit and so you can leave your chamber go to someone else's Offer them salvation, and and that's what it means to be alive. Okay, okay. And so Jesus, as he is, you know, uh, in Matthew on Earth, and he tells Peter, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." And what the gates of Hades will not uh, overcome it. Yeah, or prevail against it, um, which I think is a better better translation uh i probably i need to go back and look at the greek and see if that's justified but older translations translated that way so it would seem that jesus is saying that there's something new coming that there's a new people of god who you know the former people of god uh, could not overcome the gates of hades that they they couldn't get out. They couldn't get out, and so death for them was something to be avoided. So mm-hmm. even the great Elijah the prophet, facing the threat of death, folds like you know a card uh, a card table, mm-hmm. right? Um, because death is just it's insurmountable, and it's something that you know you need to live to fight another day. So when the rubber meets the road, you you know you hightail it out of there. You start wondering if any of this is worth it. You know, you think about John the Baptist right before Christ's resurrection, right before his death and resurrection, who is like really struggled. You know, he's, he's losing his faith as he sends eight messengers to say, are you the one to come or not? You know, um, and so, you know, death was this was this major enemy that um, people couldn't overcome and, and death conceived of as a an inescapable prison and a banishment from God's presence is certainly something that would be a trump card to your devotion, right? 
Um, but Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm going to start a whole new assembly of people, and they are ones that, that Hades can't hold. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus uh, promises in his, as he's preaching his gospel, uh, according to John especially, that not only would uh, his people come back from the grave, but they would never die. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And and so it's like if you're writing something, you know, hey, resurrection's a great hope, you know, just offer people that. Uh, why would you say something like, if you believe in me, you're never going to die? That just seems like a crazy mm-hmm. thing to say. Right? John 8, 51. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Yeah. Yeah. And so and we read that, we think, well, come on, you know, why say that? But uh, the immediate response to that kind of shows how outlandish that claim is so at this they exclaimed now we know that you are demon possessed now we know that you are demon possessed abraham died and so did the prophets yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death are you greater than our father abraham he died and so did the prophets who do you think you are yeah (laughs) so you know obviously if they thought abraham was dead that what did they expect for themselves right um, that Abraham is not, even as the founder of their nation, is not somebody who could lead them out of death. So the claim that, you know, if somebody obeys Jesus, they're never going to die uh, was too much. And I think they got the implication. So, um, and Jesus reiterates this several times through uh, John's gospel, but he kind of gives the dynamics of it in John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. What is it to have eternal life? In the gospel of John, he says that it's knowing God. Mm Mm-hmm. Knowing, yeah. knowing the Father. Somewhere in John, he says that. Yes, yes. This is the life eternal that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ who you have sent, John 17, 3. Um, but it also, he says that, you know, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I think those are all synonyms. Having eternal life, never perishing, and being in his hand. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that there is this this immediate presence of God that we are to live in now um, and access now, that that is eternal life, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, That there's something new here, that we have been folded into this eternal fellowship by uh, the work of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Uh, He is everything to us, and so when we uh, leave our bodies, we just take a step up. I would say that, you know, death in the Old Testament was step down. Right. Mm-hmm. Death in the New Testament is step up. Right, which is how Paul can say in Philippians, it's better for me to die and be, be with Christ. Exactly. Yeah. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Does that sound like what David would have said or Jacob no. or any of the Job? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so we, I, I think that there's a lot of disagreement about what happens after death. You know, is it soul sleep? Is it a conscious state? Is it a dis... You know, are we in a uh, holding place or whatever? And and I think it's even more complex or nuanced than what we've talked about so far because there's there's more nuance on the negative side as well. But uh, on the positive side, uh, 
Jesus, what Jesus has already changed is our expectation for after this life, you know. And so, and he did it by, as the Apostles' Creed say, it says, you know, descending into hell, uh, right? But Hades. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. Mm -hmm. The third day he rose again from the dead. Yeah, and so there's this this breaking of those chains. You know, you think about Samson as he's uh, incarcerated in this city um, in, I think it's actually Gaza or something, but, uh, you know, and he, uh, he, not only does he leave the city, <laughs> but he picks the gates up, right? So he mm-hmm. breaks out of the city, but he doesn't just break out. He throws those gates on his shoulder. He carries it to the top of the hill and, and, and installs them there. Mm. And I think, man, that is a picture of Jesus' mm. resurrection. That's his conquest of the grave, mm. that he didn't just, you know, sneak out between the bars, but that he ripped those things off their hinges and stuck mm-hmm. them up on a, on a hill somewhere um, so that those who are who have died in Christ, who, who died in faith, uh, are receiving their reward. And so Revelation depicts the righteous dead, at the throne of God. Okay. Yeah. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. So First resurrection. Right. That's this, us. This is You've already been through it. I have too. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Made alive in the spirit, spirit, made alive spiritually through faith in Christ. Yeah. Now, this is a, uh, in the context, this is a depiction of those who've been beheaded for the gospel. Um, and so, that specifically, but I think included in this is anybody who is uh, a believer, who is a martyr, and, and you're a martyr if you are living the gospel in this world. If you are defying the way of the world, um, if you have paid some sort of a price for your faith, I think you stand as a witness. That's what martyr means. Um, but it those people who were beheaded, um, they are standing there before the throne of God, just like the 24 elders uh, as Revelation opens, um, just like those who are um, below the throne, I think Revelation 8, who are crying out to God, how long, right? So all of these people are in the presence of God, even though they have been um, set free from their bodies, yeah? Um, And I think that means that they are alive, yeah? And, um, but they are alive because they've been through the first resurrection, just as Jesus was made alive in the spirit, so are we. Um, And so, I mean, what he says of those people is true, we know, of us right now. He says, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Is that the believer today? Mm-hmm. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. And will reign with him, and I think that is the believer today as well, mm-hmm. that we are in the kingdom, we are currently reigning with him. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Um, Romans 5, they will reign in life. Yes, exactly. And so... We are reigning with him, and we are in the thousand years. Okay, so there you go. There's some There's some messy, just open a can of worms, man. They're everywhere. But 
I believe that the millennium is now, uh, it is analogous or parallel to the three and a half years, 1260 days, all of that. Um, and so the first resurrection, is that Jesus's resurrection and we share in that? Or yeah. is the first resurrection becoming alive myself spiritually through faith in Jesus? Yes. Or is it the same? All of it. Yeah. 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 So Christ, Christ has been through a spiritual and a bodily resurrection. That So he's been through first and second resurrection. You and I have just been through first resurrection. Um, and yet, because of that, the second death has no power. Just as, mm-hmm. jo- as Jesus says in John... You know, that the one who lives and believes in me has, will not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. It's happened already. And I think that we need to just stop and celebrate the fact that Jesus has already changed everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not just waiting for some hope. Yes, we are, but, we, but we're confident in it because he's already acted in our lives. He's already brought us from death to life. Um, if you've ever been a legalist, you know the difference between being religious and being alive, okay? And, uh, and if you're alive, then you have an expectation of life. Mm-hmm. So John says in, in his letter in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I've written this so that you might know that you have eternal life. Yeah. And that, um, you know, that this is the, this is the hope, right? Um, and so that's, we started eternity and we, we praise God, uh, can join with Paul and say to live as Christ, to die as gain. Um, but I think that the other side of that is that only the degree to which to live as Christ, can we say to die as gain. Right. Eternity now people. Thanks everybody for being with us. Uh, if you've got questions, you can always email us. Uh, discussion at recoverfaith.org. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.